ask that your name would be lifted high in our midst. Lord, that you would receive glory from, from us corporately as a body, Emmaus, but also, Lord, from us individually as, as your saints. Uh, I pray that uh, you would just receive glory from us, Lord, this morning as we, we listen to this sermon proclaimed, Lord, and uh, as we go throughout our week, I pray that you would get the glory that you are due, Lord. I pray that, Lord, we do come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, and we lift high our Savior, Lord, we, we come before you in his name, and Lord, we ask that everything that we do as a people and as individuals would be for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray even in this strange format of preaching online sermons that, Lord, that Christ would still be magnified greatly um, in the homes of, of those who are listening today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would take this sermon and would, Lord, do what you promised to do, Lord, that you would take your word preached and, Lord, that you would confront us where we are, Lord. Lord, that you would build up your saints, Lord, and, and conform us more greatly into the image of Christ. Lord, that you would take the wayward soul who is walking towards their destruction this morning, Lord, and that your word would penetrate their hearts, and Lord, that your spirit would give them a heart of flesh and remove their heart of stone, that they might be soft to the things of, of you and so, Lord, I just pray that as we observe this people and observe your hand working amongst them in the book of Haggai, Lord, that you would challenge our own hearts, Lord, that you would give us um, eyes to see areas in our own lives where we have esteemed you less, and Lord, that you would give us a joyful hope as we labor uh, in the work of your kingdom. And God, I just ask that you would bless this time that we have this morning as we uh, open up your word. In your name I pray, amen. Well, back in December, as we were celebrating the Christmas holiday, my son received this gift. It was a, a little miniature keyboard, and with it came pre-programmed these tiny strips of sheet music, and on each one it had a series of notes that you could play on the keyboard and uh, kind of enjoy the song that went with it. And uh, as we were tinkering around and playing with that, and my wife was uh, showing us how to use it, being the musically gifted person in the family, uh, one song that came with this keyboard that particularly stuck out to me was the sheet music for uh, the famous Ode to Joy movement, uh, part of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9. And I found myself as uh, I was playing that music on that tiny keyboard just being infatuated by it. And, and so much so later that night I found myself laying in bed listening to this song in the dark with tears streaming down my cheeks. And as I reflect back on this moment, in part it was the, the beauty of the music that moved me, but also it was the fact of the man who wrote the song. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Ludwig von Beethoven, uh, at an early point in his adult life, young adult life, due to a series of illnesses uh, and personal habits that also illnesses that came upon him, he developed many sicknesses, and, and one of these actually ended up taking away his ability to hear. In fact, his deafness was so acute that he was limited only to communicating through writing letters. And, and the night that the Symphony Number no. 9 debuted and Beethoven finished this movement, uh, there was such a joyous, rapturous applause that took place from the people in the crowd. They were literally standing and shouting 
and cheering and applauding. And Beethoven's deafness was so acute that he didn't even know this was happening until someone on stage grabbed him by the shoulders and turned him around so he could appreciate the uh, adoration for which uh, his, his music was receiving. And I found myself moved by this so much so because when I consider the fact that this was a man who didn't have the ability to hear and yet his labor and his work produced some of the most beautiful music ever to be made. Music that has literally blessed and enriched millions of people for hundreds of years following his death. And as I think about how oftentimes this world has become a place of great cynicism and pragmatism, I imagine what it would be like for a man who's deaf to simply just throw in the towel. You don't write music when you're a deaf person. You can't make beautiful symphonies when you can't here, and yet this was not the attitude of Beethoven. In fact, this man labored long and hard to produce something that he would never get to reap the benefits of. He would never enjoy the fruits of his labor, and yet for millions and millions we have enjoyed the beauty of this music. And friends, it's a fear of mine that many of us within the church are missing out on the opportunity to labor with such a posture. Many of us are missing out on the joy of what it is to look into the world and perhaps see the pain and the suffering and the darkness and yet laboring in hope, knowing that even if we don't get to experience it, the joys and the fruit of this labor, that in and of itself, trusting that God is doing something in the midst of that. And friends, it's a fear of mine that the church is in danger of missing this. For you see, ours is a culture that prides itself on instant gratification. We like our food fast, our service fast, and most especially our internet fast. We have cultivated this tyranny of the present that measures all forms of success purely based on the here and now, not based on the faithfulness of our labor towards the Lord, but exclusively on the perceived metrics of success. Things like how fast is the turnaround? How big are the buildings? How much money is being made? How many people are flocking to the product? And friends, I suggest to you that this myopic view fails to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. It fails to acknowledge the fact that so often God works in ways that are completely beyond our mortal comprehension, and so often it is times of great pain when hope seems the dimmest, when God's work shines the brightest. And friends, so often our work is like that of the gardener who plants the seed in the ground and goes off on our way. And it will be years and years and maybe even a lifetime before we realize the fruit of that labor. And yet as a Christian, this must be our posture. For you see, we live in a world that at best is apathetic to the things of God and at worst totally defiant. Daily we hear things like, if you want to engage the world, you need to get past the Bible. You need to get past this archaic system of thinking and move to the future. The world has progressed too much to continue to rely on such a fairy tale. And yet, Christians, this type of skepticism that deals in cynicism and hopelessness is totally abhorrent to the Christian faith and life. It is rooted in the fundamental error that denies God's sovereignty. 
and that it denies the fact that God has power over sin and that God has promised to do something about it. So friends, I challenge you this morning to push against this idea of apathy and pragmatism. For you see, in Christ, we do not cling to cynicism and hopelessness, but we have the correct categories in which we can see a world that is sick with pain and sin and real evil, and yet we are not succumbed to hopelessness. But with a sober optimism, we can look to Christ to fulfill all the promises that he has given and continue to labor faithfully as he has called us to do. See, friends, God is using us in the midst of this brokenness as his ambassadors of reconciliation. For men and women who are reeling with the poison of sin, friends and Christians, you have the antidote. We are ministers of hope to a world that's infected by hopelessness. So friends, this is our call today. As we look at this passage and we go forward from this place, our call is to build and work for the glory of the Lord with great perseverance. So we are going to build and work for the glory of the Lord with great perseverance. And friends, as we look at the people of Israel during Haggai's time, we notice that they were a people in danger of missing out on this joy, in danger of forgetting these realities, who had allowed their present circumstances to cloud their hope that God truly does keep his promises. So I want to jump into this. Before I do, though, I want to put some context for us here, since we are jumping from book to book each week. For those of you who have been with us, we've been making our way through all of the prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, as you might remember, really there's been a central event that we've kind of categorized around almost all of our sermons. The context has found itself uh, kind of hovering around this event. And that event is known as the exile, an event in which the kingdom of Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, came into Jerusalem and he killed and scattered the population. And for those that weren't killed or scattered, he collected them up in a group and he carried them off to the city of Babylon, where they served and lived for 70 years. So for the prophetic ministries that we've been looking at, we find ourselves usually in one of three positions, either A, pre-exile, so prophets who are pointing to the coming judgment of God, pointing to the fact that judgment is on its way if they don't repent. Middle of exile, so the exilic prophets, and these are prophets who are exhorting the people to remain faithful as they find themselves in a, a pagan land that does not pay deference to the Lord. And then finally, post-exile, so the prophets who are speaking on behalf of the Lord to the Israelite people who have come back to the land. And today we find ourselves in Haggai, in that third category. So post-exilic prophet. So the exile has ended and people are coming back. And uh, we, were, we were discussing this as pastors this week. In some ways it is quite fitting that uh, we made our way to the post-exilic prophets and uh, we find ourselves as a people uh, on the cusp of getting to join back together again uh, as a gathered body. So uh, a little bit of correlation there that, that's fun to reflect upon. But uh, as we look at this, though, there was an event when Cyrus, the king of Persia, came in and overthrew Babylon. We see that he was impressed upon by God to send the Israelite people back to the promised land. 
back to Jerusalem where they belong. And so God prompted Cyrus to do this. And so he sent back a group of about 50,000 Israelite people to restore the land of Israel, primarily, though, to rebuild the temple. This was their chief task, and we find this event chronicled in the book of Ezra. So the book of Ezra in the Old Testament uh, shows us much of these events in greater detail. So we see in Ezra chapter 4, as the Israelite people get back to the land, they start laboring with great eagerness. 50,000 people, joyful to be back in the land that God has given to them, joyful to be back in their homes, and they begin the task of rebuilding the temple. They set up an altar that they might properly worship the Lord, and they begin to lay the foundations for the temple. And yet what we see in Ezra 4 is very soon the opposition from worldly people begins to mount up. So opponents of God's people begin to arise and challenge this work. We see they begin to threaten them with violence if they continue building. They begin to use their influence and their resources to, to bribe others to keep them from being able to work. And eventually what we see in the book of Ezra is they just stop working altogether. So the people of Israel have been sent back by God to work and rebuild this temple, and yet they stop doing it out of fear and opposition. And we fast forward nearly 20 years. So in our church, Emmaus, uh, and many churches, 20 years might not seem like a very long time. Uh, with our church being a fairly young congregation, uh, you can imagine 20 years for many people of us is almost the entirety of our lifetime. So for 20 years, they're back in the land. They were sent there with the purpose of rebuilding God's temple. And yet we look over and it still lays desolate. The temple of God remains completely empty. And so it's within this context that God sends his servant Haggai to stir his people to faithfulness. And so we're going to see this kind of in three major movements that we're going to be observing today. The first one, we're going to be looking at the priority of our worship. Whose house are you building? So the priority of our worship, whose house are you building? The next thing we're going to be looking at is the call to labor with perseverance. And then finally, we will notice that it is God who makes our work clean. So we're going to read starting in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 here to get started as we look at the priority of our worship. Whose house are you building? And it says this, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins 
while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and the grain, and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So friends, as we find ourselves looking in on this situation, we find a people who have returned to their city utterly ravaged. If you remember some of the descriptions from the prophets pre-exiled, the words came true. This was utter devastation that was unleashed on Jerusalem. Buildings being knocked down, flattened. In fact, if you remember our sermon series back at Nehemiah, we, we saw some of this carnage and devastation. City walls totally flattened. And we see this people coming back to the land, and we don't find them apathetically living in a tent kind of near the city waiting on something to happen. This is not the description we see of this people. In fact, the opposite is true. We find a group that is busy rebuilding. They're working hard to revitalize and replenish their community. We see them building up nice homes, planting large fields, accumulating for themselves and others food and drink and clothing and also building up their finances. On the surface level, we have to look at this and say that this is an excellent thing, right? To step into a situation of brokenness and provide order and structure where there once was chaos in and of itself is a great thing. In fact, if we survey the scriptures, we see that anything where we find the cultivation of structure and order and human flourishing is an intrinsically good thing before the Lord at face value. So I think it's important for us to see this, Christian, that this is good work that's going on here. These are people that have given of themselves to rebuild the city and to make it to where humans can flourish within it. They're not simply sitting around lazily or idly, but they're working hard so that others might enjoy and they themselves might enjoy the benefits of their labor. However, what we see in this passage is there's something more sinister going on than this. If we strip back the veneer of this scene, uh, this beautiful scene of people working hard and rebuilding their city, what we find is there's a, a poverty that has stricken this people. We saw this in the text, right? This is a people who have worked diligently, and yet they have found that their results are meager at best. In fact, it's described as though that they find themselves in a state of poverty. Listen to some of these terms. They've sowed much, but harvested little. They have eaten and drank, and yet they are never satisfied. They have clothing, and yet they find themselves that still cold, and also they accumulate money, but it's like dropping it into a bag, and it just falls out at the bottom. It's never filled. And friends, while it's easy to take this and look at this on merely a physical standpoint, to acknowledge the physical poverty that has overcome them, I would submit to you that the major issue we find here goes beyond simply the, the physical distress they find themselves in, but this is primarily a spiritual poverty that has stricken this people. Notice the description there. They're living in these ornate houses. That term paneled homes is meant for a reason. It's not just a tiny little tent. This is an actual solid structure with, with good design and building. These are people who have clothes, they have food, they have drink, and yet what we see is they're not satisfied. It's not enough for them. They have labored to fill their bank accounts and their closets, their storage units, and yet we see 
They still feel as though they are empty. And friends, what we see here is a picture of the reality of discontentment. This is a people that finds themselves discontent because they have placed all of their hopes solely on the things of this world to satisfy them. They're banking on the fact that if they can plant their fields, build up their homes, accumulate the finances and the food and the clothing that they need, that they're going to be satisfied. And yet what we see is they find themselves totally impoverished in this moment. Friends, this is the lie that says, I will be happy if I get just one more zero at the end of my bank account, one more vacation week, one more car to add to the garage, one more romantic encounter. Friends, you see, when we elevate things and people to satisfy our greatest need, we find that we are left wanting. And no matter how much we accumulate, it's never enough. No matter how much we accumulate, it's never enough. And friends, this is the plight the Israelites find themselves in as we are gazing in on their lives in this moment. The prophet prophet Haggai comes in to confront them in this and and call them to faithfulness. Notice again his words in 2 through 4 and then 8 and 9. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while the house lies in ruins go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that i may take pleasure in it and that i may be glorified says the lord you looked for much and behold it came to little and when you brought it home it blew away why declares the lord of hosts because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own home friends here we find the sinister problem underlying this city. It's not that they're not working hard. It's not that they're not busying themselves with good things, but all the while, as it says in verse 9, they have let the Lord's house lie in ruins while they have busied themselves with their own homes. You see, friends, this temple represents much more than a nice, pretty building that they can stare at and marvel at the accomplishment of their hands, but this was the place that they had covenantally agreed with the Lord that the Lord would dwell in this place and this would be the place where they would rightly come to worship Him. And yet in failing to rebuild this temple, what they are saying to themselves and to the Lord is that there are other things that are much more important right now, God. It's not the time to build your house. We need to get our lives in order. We need to make sure that we're financially secure We need to make sure that we ourselves are on good footing. And once we've done that, once we feel in a solid place, then we'll prioritize you, Lord. Then we'll take care of your house. See, friends, I can't help but imagine there there are some listening today who are in danger of falling into this same pattern. Perhaps like the Israelites that started out of fear, Maybe there's a chance that it will cost you to prioritize the Lord. Maybe there's a chance it will cost you in your vocation, in your friendships, in your relationships that you're building, in your family even. What do you mean your son can't come play a baseball game on Sunday? It's just one game. What do you mean you're not going to attend that wedding? I thought you were a loving person. Isn't that narrow-minded? 
Perhaps maybe you found yourself slipping more into a state of apathy. You find yourself wondering, is it really that important to gather with the people of God? Hasn't COVID taught us that we can just do this online and I can stay in my pajamas? And, uh, you know, that's really a good thing. I'll, I'll get more rest that way and uh, I'll be able to spend time with my family uh, more more intentionally. And uh, so, yeah, I think I don't think I'm going to be going back to, to gathering in the church. Perhaps maybe it's neither of those. Maybe it's not fear. Maybe it's not apathy. Maybe it's good things like we've seen with this people group, people who are enriching the lives of others by building up businesses and homes, making the lives of their families better in doing so. And yet what we see here is it's not this that's the problem, but the problem is that of priority. All the striving that they've been doing to build up these cities has been irrespective and even in some ways contrary to the fact that God exists and God deserves their glory. They're building for themselves their own homes and kingdoms without God. Perhaps maybe someone's listening and you don't even have a category for what it might look like to prioritize worship of God in your life. In fact, you've lived most of your life kind of grasping clasping to some of these moral, cultural realities such as, you know, do what makes you happy. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. And you wouldn't even begin to know what it looks like to prioritize God in your life. And can I just ask you a question? Regardless of where you fall out on that spectrum, maybe you don't think you fall on that spectrum, let me just ask you a question today. The same question that Haggai asked the Israelite people. I want to invite you to consider your ways. Consider your ways. How has that been working for you? Think about how you've prioritized your time. Think about how you've prioritized your finances. Think about how you've prioritized uh, the way you interact with other people, the way you do business, the way you speak. How has that been working for you? If you honestly answer that question today and say, you know what, I find myself miserable today. I've labored to build my own house, and yet I find myself totally spiritually impoverished. I don't love the life that I've built. Can I just challenge you today to say that this could be God's grace to you this morning? The fact that you find yourself unsatisfied, discontent with the way that you've been doing life could be God's grace to you. This could be an opportunity that God is using to remind you that there's something far greater for you than to simply chase after the next thing, to chase fulfillment in the next idea or the next project or in the next house or the next job or the next city or the next encounter. And that your fulfillment can only be truly realized in your worship and love for the Lord God. You see, God himself has designed his creation in such a way that your joy is more closely attached to his glory than to your own self-satisfaction. You get more joy, John Piper calls it superior joy, out of pursuing the things that God wants than you do out of pursuing the things that you want. 
And that's the glory of the Christian life is that as you mature and as the Spirit works, those two things start to line up more and more. It becomes less of a, a competing interest. Desiring of what God wants and desiring of what you want. And friends, the, another thing about this is we see in this passage that so often these things aren't even competing interests. Your ability to have food on your table, have a home to live in, have clothes to wear, oftentimes aren't competing against God's glory. In fact, God wants those things for you as well. We see that God himself is saying this. He said, I've withheld from you these things, not because I'm angry or out of judgment for you, but because I care, because I want you to be dissatisfied with these things so that you'll turn and prioritize me. So friends, if you find yourself in that category today, this is God's grace to you. See, that's the freedom we have when we seek and we trust the Lord that he will give us what we need. Jesus' words reminds us in Matthew 6, this very same thing. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. We see that there's a freedom that comes that when we prioritize God and his glory in our lives and that we trust him to supply our needs, then so often we're content no matter what the circumstances. Our happiness and contentment isn't latched upon a certain number in the bank account or a certain aesthetic quality to the home or the title that we have when we walk into work, but our happiness is secure in the fact that God is glorified in our lives and that we love and labor for Him. So friends, this is the freedom. You don't have to be a prisoner to your circumstances. Your bank account, your clothes, other materials do not define your happiness. God's glory brings you pleasure regardless of whose name is on your car or your handbag. Friends, this is a glorious truth that we do well to cling to today. So as we ask ourselves the question, whose house am I building? I pray that we take that seriously, Megas. Don't just gloss that over and say, well, I'm listening to this sermon right now. I go to church on Sunday. I go to community group. So I'm good. Take some time to reflect. Whose house am I building in the way that I work? Whose house am I building in the way that I parent? In the way that I treat my spouse? Am I showing a desire to see them edified and built up in the Lord? Or am I showing in myself a desire to see my own wants and needs fulfilled? And friends, ask yourselves these questions. Let, let me just say as a quick aside here, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I would encourage you too as well, uh, Emmaus, maybe adopt this question as a, as a primary evangelism strategy when you're talking to other people about uh, the Lord. You know, I think oftentimes we prioritize the need to be able to answer questions uh, related to philosophies and, and science and and other categories, and I think that there's definitely merit within these. But I also think we do well oftentimes to, to realize and to believe that God is actually better. God's ways are actually better. I think we're tempted to listen to our culture that says that if you're following after Christ this morning, you're somehow being suppressed and you're suppressing others with, with this kind of ideology. And I just want to challenge you to flip that narrative on your head and realize that Following God actually is better for you. Not just in the sense of one day it will be, 
one day when we finally get to experience the joy of being in his presence, it'll be better, but it's kind of terrible now. No, that is not the reality in front of us today. Your flourishing is meant and set up more today by following after the Lord in his ways than it will ever be chasing after any worldly ideologies. I believe that 100% of his. And so when you're talking to other people and you hear about their struggles and their challenges and their hurts and how the world has beaten them down, not in a condescending way, but ask them the question, consider your ways. How is that working for you? How is following after these worldly ideas working for you? And invite them to consider the beauty of Jesus Christ. I won't spend a ton of time on verses 12 through 15. It's a very important section, but uh, I, I just want to kind of summarize this really quick for us. What we see is Haggai's word goes forward to the people, to the leaders, and to the people. And we see something of a rarity for us here. For the last couple of weeks, we've almost gotten used to seeing people receive warning from the Lord and turning the other way. So go this way, and the people go that way. And yet what we find here is when Haggai through the Lord, proclaims this to the people, they obey. The people obey. They're confronted by the word of God. Um, they're challenged, and they respond in obedience and fear of the Lord. And I just want to take a minute to encourage us today, believers, that this is the proper response of the people of God. When we're confronted by the truth of, of God's word, we don't get self-defensive or self-justifying. We don't try to find ways to get around this or a loophole, but we see that our sin and we respond appropriately by turning and, and walking in obedience. And I also want to just encourage you today, believers, that God's word really does accomplish what he intends for it to do. I think if we spend too much time on Facebook or watching the news, we can find ourselves losing any hope that there's any chance that words can change somebody's heart. That there's no hope in our words to change somebody from continuing on in their sin. And friends, I would submit to you that that fundamentally is a true statement, devoid from and apart from the Holy Spirit and the work of the Lord. And yet what we see is when the Holy Spirit moves in the hearts of people, one of two things happens every time. Either there's a hardening to the things of God or a softening to the things of God. And we've seen both throughout this prophetic series, right? We've seen many people who have been confronted by the word of God with real tangible danger in their presence, and yet they've still hardened their hearts and they've turned away. And that happens, and God is still glorified within that. But what we see here in this moment is that the word of the Lord penetrates the hearts of the people of Israel through Haggai, and they respond in obedience. So I just wanted to take that as a quick moment to implore you and encourage you to continue to speak the truth of God's word to people. Uh, you're not responsible for the results of it. Haggai was not a more faithful prophet than Ezekiel was. Even though Ezekiel prophesied and everyone ignored him and was destroyed and taken to Babylon in exile, Haggai prophesied and everybody listened. And so their faithfulness was the same, though. They both spoke the word of the Lord. And so I encourage you to do the same thing today. And uh, don't find yourself clinging to the results so much. Uh, with that said, though, I want to read chapter 2 as we move into our next point. And this is the call to labor and perseverance. For you see the excitement of this moment that we just experienced, the people obeying the word of the God, the word of the Lord, was fairly short-lived in some senses. That excitement and rush they got from obeying God found itself uh, running into an obstacle very quickly. So let's read this together. 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and dry lands, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I fill my house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So this is an amazing passage of scripture, and uh, I want to start by focusing on those first three verses, though. When we see this people, they've begun the rebuilding process. So in obedience, they've responded to the word of the Lord, and they're laboring to rebuild this house. And I just want to read this again. Notice the words here. It says in verse three, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So apparently what we have happened here is the people of Israel begin working. They begin laboring unto God. They've responded to the proclaimed word of God. They're responding in faithfulness by working. And yet they go about this for about a month. They get into the project and they start to look around. And just frankly, the people are majorly disappointed with what they have, what they've seen so far. This is a group of people who remembers the Temple of Solomon, this great house of worship that was built by one of the richest men to have ever lived, and, and yet they look around now and they see the results of their work, and frankly, it's pitiful. It's pathetic in light of the glory that was once on this place. And likely for them, there's a great temptation to go ahead and just stop. Why bother with this pipsqueak temple? And Christian, today I fear that many of us find ourselves in a similar position when we are convicted in our sin, that our life is not in conformity to the way of Christ. Maybe for many of us, we found ourselves looking at the way that we're parenting our children or the way that we're treating our spouse or even the way that we behaved at work and we've experienced real conviction of that and we've desired to see our lives conform more to the glory of God and less about trying to build our own house and so we've begun to try to make those changes only to discover that things didn't match the expectations that we had set out. Maybe you're a parent who was convicted about the way that you're spiritually leading your children and so you decided that you're going to begin doing a time of worship as a family. 
maybe before bedtime every night, you've decided you're going to get some resources, read the Bible together, pray with your family. And in your mind, you had this picture of revival that was going to be taking place where your kids are singing these songs of worship to the Lord and they're hanging on your every word as you're providing this family devotional and only you've found this to devolve into more like a chorus of kids screaming for mom uh, as they're trying to make escapes out of the house uh, or out of their room to run around the house and and it's just become a disaster in your eyes. Perhaps you're someone who's prioritized the way that you prioritize the Lord in your work and yet the very first conversation you had you ran up against someone who was very turned off by it perhaps maybe even said harmful and hurtful things to you maybe you're seeking to disciple other people and your first five attempts at meeting people to uh, study the Bible together looks like you sitting in a coffee shop by yourself at six in the morning uh, only to get a text two hours later that said sorry I overslept and friends, in those moments, I, f I fear that we find ourselves tempted to ask the question, why even bother? Why even waste our time doing these things when faithfulness appears to be so insignificant? When the results appear to be so minuscule? And Christian, I want to encourage you with two things. The first is the reality that you have a real enemy. There is one, Satan, who seeks to still kill and destroy. He desires for your destruction, and sometimes that most manifests itself in your apathy. In your apathy towards how you disciple your family, and your attitude and how you use your platforms of work in other areas in order to minister to other people. He desires for that to be hard for you. In fact, I would submit to you and challenge you if it's a difficulty and a struggle, that's all the more reason to do it. Father, if your first attempt to disciple your children was a wild disaster, all the more reason to do it again tonight and the next night after that and the night after that. For you see, when we labor in faithfulness, the results are not on our shoulders. And this passage communicates this to us clearly. As we look back to it, there are these repeating charges we see, this call to be strong, this call to work, and this call to fear not that God gives to his people when they're laboring to build his house. And so that's my charge to you today, Christian. Have some fortitude. Be strong in your work. Don't be deterred just because it was hard or you find opposition or it didn't go as good as you had hoped it would or it doesn't look as flashy or fancy as you thought it might, that's all the more reason to press in in faithfulness and keep your hand working. And fear not, for the results are not in your hand. The Lord reminds this people that he has been with them ever since they walked out of Egypt. That might be a striking statement, right? This is a people who literally were kicked out of the land. They were kicked out of the place that God promised to dwell with them. And yet he says, I have been with you since that time. The Lord never left them. And he continues to be with them. He reminds them that the silver and the gold of this earth are his. There's nothing that is holding his hands back and keeping him from doing all that he intends to accomplish. 
So we don't have to labor in fear or in apathy that whatever we do probably isn't going to matter for much because we put our efforts and our labor when they're in the Lord and trusting into his hands that he's going to do something far greater than we could have ever hoped or imagined. So our tiny offering get taken by the Lord and he's the one who creates the spiritual harvest. Ours is just to be faithful. Christian, yours is to be faithful today. So persevere in it, in the work that you're doing, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing you do is minuscule. Nothing you do is insignificant. Nothing you do is pointless when you are laboring and building on behalf of the Lord in His way, His kingdom, His priority. When you are placing that at the forefront, nothing you do is insignificant anymore, Christian. So have hope in your labor. Persevere. Verse 9 really is the, the magnum opus of this statement. It's a staggering claim. I want to read that to you again. He says this, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So friend, as we're looking at this and considering the claim of this statement, it should be staggering to us. Think about the temple that was sitting in this place. The temple that was here, built by Solomon. Literally a structure that people had come from miles and miles to see. People had come from kingdoms across the earth, and when they got there, they said, I had heard all of this hype about this temple, and yet when I get here, your kingdom's even more spectacular than I could ever imagine. And the Lord comes to this group of people building this, what looks like a little ragtag excuse for a replacement. And he says, this temple is going to be far more glorious than Solomon's temple. And friends, while there is an immediate sense to the fulfillment of this promise, because this temple does get rebuilt, I don't think the intention of this text is for us to take a picture of each one and compare them side by side and try to determine which temple was actually better. I don't think that's what Haggai, the Lord, had in mind in this statement. For you see, even this temple that they're about to build is going to get flattened as well. If you go to Jerusalem today, you will not find a magnificent temple standing in the place where this was built. In fact, in 70 AD, this temple too will be flattened to the ground. So whenever the Lord says that he will gather from the four corners of the earth and the nations these resources and bring them to this glorious edifice, this place where he will dispense peace, far more in mind than the building, the Lord here is speaking of something far greater. I want to turn really quickly to 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. If you like to turn... There in your Bible, you're welcome to. But I'm going to read that really quickly. And it says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, him being Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
So friends, this is our connection to this passage. For us, the Lord is not compelling us today to go build this large building that every Christian would convene at in order to worship the Lord properly. This is not a text that compels us to start the new building fund, although uh, it's not necessarily antithetical to that. But uh, much more so, much more primary in this text, what we have in mind here is that there's this place the Lord is building in which his presence will dwell, in which he will distribute peace, not simply from a militaristic standpoint, but peace in the sense of the biblical idea of shalom, this peace in which you're no longer striving in your work, trying to justify yourself, but you have been reconciled to God rightly. You've been reconciled to others as well. And so you live in a state of peace. All has been done. We can rest and enjoy. Friends, this building, this is what's so amazing. This building that God is talking about, that he is building in our midst, is not made of brick and mortar and stones, but it is made up of people. And it's you, church. You are the spiritual dwelling for the Lord. And so God has promised to draw in from the four corners of the earth and make this a spotless dwelling in which he might reside forever in all eternity. Friends, this is the glorious reality that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It may seem empty right now, but there are no such thing as meaningless reactions. There's a weight of glory in every spiritual conversation you have. There's a weight of glory every time that you seek to prioritize the Lord in your family and in your homes, when you speak of Him, when you teach your children, and when you teach your family, and when you proclaim the truth of God in the midst of others, you are doing amazing work. You are part of building up through the Spirit this glorious edifice where the Lord would dwell. And one day we have the promise that this will be a perfect place, no longer contaminated by sin, right now cleansed by Jesus Christ, made into a holy priesthood ourselves. We are the spiritual building that God is using to reconcile others to himself. So friends, hear hear my heart in saying this. That is why one of my greatest fears when I, I think about the disorder and the, the disunity that we see around us. I beg you, church, don't let this come into our presence. Don't let us become a place of bickering a place of disunity, for you see, we are this temple that the Lord is building to reconcile men and women to himself by the power of Christ's blood through the Holy Spirit. We come together as one so that God might be glorified in this place and we might see more come as stones being added to this spiritual dwelling place acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. So friends, labor with joy and hope. You do more than you know when you work. For the Lord. Friends, our last point I want us to look at is the fact that it is God who makes our work clean. This can be a little bit of a a challenging passage to interpret, I will admit. So uh, I want want to key in on a couple of verses here and read these to you. Uh, First off, let's start in verse 12. And it says this, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil, 
or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. I'm going to skip ahead here to verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. There are... Uh, uh, many interpretations for uh, how to take this passage, but uh, I think that when we really dig into this, we see the central message coming out. The Lord uses Haggai to give these examples uh, as he's questioning the priest in their midst, and he's asking them the question simply. He's saying, if something that is unclean touches something that is clean, does the unclean thing become clean? Or does the unclean thing make the clean thing unclean? Say that five times fast. Uh, but the answer to that, as they said, is the unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean, not vice versa. Not vice versa. Uh, a famous uh, pastor once said that uh, if you wear a pair of gloves and you go and touch mud, it never ever makes the glove or the mud more glovey, uh, but almost always makes the gloves muddy, right? And so it's in this imagery we see the fact that you can't rely on something that is unclean to somehow sanctify itself. And what we find here is this group of people who are beginning to do this work, and the Lord is reminding them in this moment that the work that they're doing isn't somehow sanctifying them. The fact that they're building this temple this place intended to be a holy dwelling for the Lord doesn't cause their uncleanness to go away. In fact, usually the truth is the reality is opposite. You don't get to touch a holy thing and become holy. However, when you're unclean and you touch holy things, they become unclean. And so the Lord's reminding them that their work and the things that they're laboring to build is not going to justify them. It's not going to somehow magically make them clean. Their obedience did not make them clean. And yet what we see is it's the Lord who's chosen to bless them. The Lord says, from this day on, I will bless you. The Lord is the one who cleanses their sins and takes them away. And friends, I just want to remind you today that when we put our hands to work, if it's devoid from the gospel of Jesus Christ, our unclean hands are more likely to produce more uncleanness than clean things. It is Christ who takes away our sin-stained hands and makes them clean. So I remind you today that the gospel must be the foundation for everything we do. We can go out into the world and we can work and we can build things, to God's glory, I pray that we do. And yet if we do so without the gospel, all we're doing is taking our soiled, sin-stained, unclean hands and touching other things only to breed and make more 
unclean things. And while there's common grace that blesses nations through policies and practices, governments and organizations, these things fail to do the work that only Jesus Christ can do through his death and resurrection. And that is to take our sin before a holy God and crush it in his body by being crushed himself. And it's from this place of being reconciled to God that we are reconciled to others. So let the work that we do always be part of building the house of God. And this can look a lot of different ways, but if we make the gospel superfluous to our actions, we are on a fool's errand. Nothing that we do will remain unstained by sin. So I beg you, church, go forward with the gospel on your lips and all that you do. Preaching Christ crucified is first importance. For our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and spiritual rulers of this age. Otherwise, our hands are bound to replicate more sin and more impurity when we build in our own wisdom. So church, my charge to you today is build for the glory of the Lord. Prioritize God's glory in your lives starting in your homes and flowing out for, outward from there and labor with perseverance. For the Lord takes your offering and does more with it than you could ever hope or imagine. It's in light of these that I want to charge you quickly with these three pastoral charges. The first one is this. I want to ask you the question, whose house are you building? In church, I beg you, please don't sprint through that answer, as I said earlier. Take time to ask that question and answer it. In the way that I'm parenting my kids, am I doing so in a way that is creating disciples of Jesus Christ or am I seeking to create disciples of Adam Sanders? Am I trying to make kids who are going to make me look good in public at all times or am I trying to see my children's hearts conform to the image of Christ? Friends, when we labor, ask yourself the question, no matter what sphere of life it is, whose house am I building today? The second one is this. I want you to take courage in your labor of church. Like Beethoven, we might not ever experience the fruit of the labor we put forward. But friends, when we're building and laboring for the Lord, we are planting seeds that will one day result in a harvest. And so I just want to encourage you, don't be a prisoner of the moment that looks at your circumstances and say, says, what's the point? But I beg you today, labor and hope that even if things look bleak right now, even if things feel like they're pointless, when we labor for the Lord, we do so with a guaranteed promise that our faithfulness is pleasing unto the Lord, and that He is in charge of the harvest. So the work of our hands ultimately is glorifying to Him when we seek His glory, and we can trust Him to do what He would choose. So I ask you, work. If you're not, church, if you're not, work hard where the Lord has placed you and labor for His glory. And my last question, 
I ask us all, but particularly to the non-believer today, to consider your ways. Think about the life that you're building. Think about the passions of your heart. The, the joys that you have sought out and the hopes that you have and the plans that you've made and the things that you've run after. Have they fulfilled you? Do you feel happier? Do you feel true joy? Or are you one phone call away from devastation? Are you one stock market crash away from sheer hopelessness? And today I just want to invite you to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ who took your pain so seriously that he came to earth, to put on flesh, that he bore the sins of his people on the cross so that they would no longer carry the punishment and penalty for their sin before a holy God, but so that they might be seen as perfect and righteous. So they may be reconciled to God and, and built up as these spiritual stones into this holy established dwelling for the Lord. And I ask you, consider your ways. And without any shame, I would say to you today that Jesus is better. It might not feel like it. You might not believe me say this now, but I promise you it's true. Jesus is better. And if you cry out to him today, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will delight in you and bringing you into his family. And so I beg you, consider your ways and consider Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just lift high your name. We thank you so much that it was your eternal plan that, Lord, you would reconcile for yourself a people through the spotless blood of Jesus Christ, through the perfect lamb, Jesus, Lord. And we thank you that your spirit today is a sign and a guarantee of this salvation we have for those of us who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and have been brought near and reconciled. Lord, you are building up this house of peace, this place where enmity ends, striving ends, this place where sin is crushed. Lord, this place where we can truly live at rest and in hope. And Lord, I pray that you would just help the believers of Emmaus, Lord, who are listening today to labor with perseverance and joy, Lord, that they would find joy in the mundane, Lord, the things that maybe seem to be uneventful, and Lord, I pray that they would find joy in knowing that all of their labors have been sanctified by you, Lord. All of your, all of their labors are for your glory, Lord, and, and you're doing something magnificent with them. And so I pray that we would labor in hope, pray that we would have joy and trust in you, Lord, as we seek to see you glorified in our lives. And Lord, I pray that your word would continue to work, convicting us of sin, Lord, shining a light on areas that we've prioritized uh, for our own glory and not for yours. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that will conform and obey, and Lord, that would turn and begin to, to labor rightly in you. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in us as we go throughout this week, Lord, that you would give us, uh, Lord, just a joy in you as we labor where you placed us. And it's your name I pray. pray. Amen. All right, Emmaus, thank you so much. Um, I want to leave you with this pastoral benediction, and then uh, 
we will be concluded. So, Emmaus, I implore you to labor faithfully in full confidence that God can take all of our feeble efforts and do exceedingly more than we could ever have hoped or dreamed. So go forward in confidence that your Savior is with you and he is worthy to be worshipped in every sphere of your life. Build his home and trust that he will supply your needs. Go in peace. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.